going to jump right in uh, and talk about what, what we've been doing on this series. We've been doing a series in the book of Hebrews. If you have that first slide up there, that fix your eyes on Jesus. Um, the book of Hebrews. Does it mean to focus on Jesus? How to make sure we're fixed on Jesus, not on other things to give us life and things like that. And then go to the next slide, Aaron, because this is one of the things. I've got my uh, Katie, the math teacher, would appreciate this. this is my, my gigantic greater than sign. Um, and the book of Hebrews is filled with the statement that Jesus is greater. Also, it can also be uh, translated superior to. And it's one of those things I've said before. It can, it can sound arrogant. It's arrogant or true because the author is consistently reminding these people, the, Hebrew, the, the Jewish people, that in that time we're living in Rome, about 65 AD. They were living in a society that was asserting there were many ways to know God, so please don't talk too much about Jesus. He was reminded, and they were wrestling with, do I follow Jesus, or do I just kind of fit into culture? Or is there really something unique about this Jesus character? So the author's reminding these people, who were about to endure persecution, so they were going to endure physical persecution, not just hassles, but persecution. That Jesus is who he says he is, and his way to know God is superior than any other, any other way. And so, so what I've done the last few weeks is... I mean, the author of Hebrews tells the people he's greater than Moses, he's greater than Aaron, and he's greater than the angels. So he's trying to communicate to them, hey, Jesus is greater than any of the Old Testament, than any old way of knowing God. He doesn't de degenerate Moses or Aaron or angels. He's just saying that's, that's, you can't stop there. Because there's a whole new way that Jesus talks about. And then one of the things I've added to that, and right in Hebrews doesn't say this, but I think it's appropriate to say it this way, that Jesus and I, these are different things I've got to replace. It's greater than Lincoln, representing politics. Jesus is greater than anything that politics can offer you. Appropriate time to say this, four or five days after the election. Um, Jesus offers more knowledge and answers great questions more than Aristotle or any philosopher ever would. More than any scientist ever would, like Galileo. We've also said that Jesus, we believe Jesus offers superior answers than any other world religion. Sorry, let me put Shakespeare up here. So Jesus offers us more awareness, and he offers us a way to new life more than any kind of intellectual way. Plus, he offers us you know, Gandhi or Joseph Smith representing Mormonism, Muhammad or Buddha, that we believe that Jesus answers the big questions of life in a superior fashion than anybody else. And again, when I said before, either that's arrogant or it's true. That's a decision you have to make, whether it's arrogant to say that, whether the right of the Hebrews arrogant in saying that, or it's true. Jesus is a unique being in history, supernatural, born of, a, born of a virgin, God and man, died for us, rose again from the dead. Those are the things that the writer of Hebrews reminded people, that's what makes Jesus unique. He's not just another philosopher, social activist, or religious leader. He's a unique person. But today I want to I, I wanna, and I think most of us, many of us, would say, yeah, we, we get that, we agree with that. Not, not as maybe much of a challenge for us. But I want to add a few things that I have put up there that might get us, that might hit home, it hits home with me, maybe gets home with you. Uh, Jesus is greater than money, or my desire to have more. Uh, Jesus is greater, ouch, than my comfort. Because sometimes I may have to choose Jesus above my comfort. 
My pursuit of Jesus should be greater than my pursuit of friends. Not that friends are bad at all. We need friends. But if your friends are getting in the way of following Jesus, then you have a choice to make. Right? Your pursuit of money is getting in the way of you following Jesus, you have a choice to make. If your desire and pursuit for a nice little life, a comfortable life, is greater than your pursuit of following Jesus, you have a choice to make. And the last one I put up here is sex. Now, I'm the first one to admit that sex is one of God's absolute greatest ideas ever, ever, okay? But if my pursuit, even as a married man, if my pursuit of sex is greater than my love of Jesus, which tells me how I love my wife, or for those of you who aren't married, if your pursuit of sex is outside the moral boundaries that God sets, then then you have choice. We have choices to make in all these things. So it, this is where the rubber meets the road for most of us. Some of some of us may still be struggling with understandably about other world religions and things like that. But for most of us, this is where our daily choices come into being. Where we have to decide, am I willing to follow Jesus? Do I believe that his way of handling money is superior to my way? Do I believe that Jesus' understanding of sexuality and, and sexual expression, do I believe his way leads me to freedom and wholeness in life? Or am I going to choose my own way? Do I believe that Jesus and his pursuing him is more important than some friends that might pull me away from Jesus? So those are choices. I'm not trying to, it's not being a naysayer. It's saying if you want the life that the Bible talks about Jesus has, we have choices. So now in light of that, I'm going to where we the passage we're going to look at today from Hebrews chapter 5, because it, it relates to some of these things. So Hebrews chapter 5 is the next chapter of Hebrews. And like I said, Hebrews was written about 65 AD, 30 or so years after Jesus died. Most likely a group of Christians in Rome. In those days, those other scandals probably read out loud off the scroll to the church and then passed around. Other churches got to read it. And then over time, the collection of spiritual leaders, Christian leaders, thought it was something that needed. It was from God. That's why it's in the Bible. That, that was a long history of how that all happened. But let's just start with this, and I'll read it. We'll stop a couple times, all right? Every high priest is a man chosen to represent other people in their dealings with God. So the Jewish people, which is the audience, and they understood that there was one high priest, his job was to be the connecting point from the people to God. That was his job. And once a year, the high priest went into the temple, into this third place called the holy place, offered sacrifices to sins for himself and the people so that they, they could be reconnected with God all over again. So these Jewish people who have gotten this letter understood that's what a high priest does. He speaks to God to the people. He presents their gifts to God and offers sacrifices for their sins. And he is able to deal gently with ignorant and wayward people because he himself is subject to the same weaknesses. So a high priest was a human being who understood. Yes, we understood the human struggle, the struggle with how we want some of these things more than we want God. Right? That is why he must offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as theirs. Okay, we're talking about human being. Next, next part. And no one can become a high priest because he wants such an honor. You couldn't just say... I'm going to run to the office of high priest. It was something that God chose, or knew God chose. But he must be called by God for this work, just as Aaron was. That is why Christ did not honor himself by assuming he would become a high priest. Next one. Next slide. Okay. No, he was chosen by God. He said, and you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he, there's another way to translate that. Is today I have been revealed to myself as your father. So it's not like Jesus also just made his son. In another passage, God said to him, You are a priest forever 
in the order of Melchizedek. You don't need to understand what Melchizedek is, though this is a special label saying that he was not only the priest, he was the king. Right? So he's saying Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't just volunteer, but he was a high priest chosen by God. Go ahead. While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. Now that statement right there might be something some of you maybe like what does that mean when you talk about it? Okay, that's there. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. And even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. Now let's have this life this way. Jesus had to learn obedience. I mean, yes, he was always obedient. But loud prayers, pleadings, loud crying tears, it sounds like there was a time where Jesus may not have been able to happy, right? What he's referring to, which every one of the Jewish listeners would have known, and many of us know, is the time for the next slide. It's the time where Jesus was praying uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. So the next slide, Aaron, yeah. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was, the night he was betrayed. This is actually one of my favorite, I have like, I have like 55 favorite scenes in the life of Jesus, but that'd be good. I was sick to say that would have This is one of my favorite relatable Part of Jesus. Because he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows what's going to happen. He knows that in the very near future, like within minutes, hours, physical torture, abuse, and death, and bearing the weight of the sins of the world is going to be So in Mark, so again, these people that the writer was writing to, they understood the story. I'm going to, I'm going to read this story so we kind of understand again how Jesus can relate to us in our struggle for, and our desire for the life we want, like comfort and all those things. So, in Mark chapter 14, this is what the Bible says about Jesus. And I want, I want you, when, I, when you hear, I'm going to read it. I want you to see how Jesus can relate to the deepest emotions you feel when things aren't going on. Because part of what this writer, the Hebrew, is saying in chapter 5, how much Jesus understands what you're going through. Anything you have felt, anything you are feeling now, Jesus already felt. He hoped he knows what we're going through, all right? Here's what the writer, here's what Mark said about Jesus in the garden. Jesus became deeply troubled and distressed. Jesus was not pretending there. He was deeply troubled and distressed. Think about times when you felt deeply troubled and distressed. Jesus was feeling this at this moment. And he said, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. That's a pretty heavy statement. Matter of fact, I would guess some of us may not have. When is, when's the last time your soul was crushed with grief to the point of death? That sounds like he's in a really, really heavy place of his soul. Probably deeper than any of us have ever felt. So again, nothing you felt is beyond what Jesus has ever felt. Grief, but he's talking about the grief, the soul being crushed with grief. Just when you think about that, it almost, you can feel heavy just thinking about it. Then he tells his friends, stay here and keep watch with me. That's what he's telling them and the disciples. My soul's crushed, I'm stressed. And it says he went on a little further and he fell to the ground. He prayed that, if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. So Jesus is saying, God is in the plan B. I'll go with the plan B. I heard somebody tell me one time, well, Jesus was just saying that to him, for an example. No, Jesus 
fully God, he was fully human. He really, really, really wanted plant B. He wasn't pretending. He wasn't reading a script from his lines. He wasn't pretending to be distressed. He wasn't pretending to cry. He was distressed. And this is his prayer. His prayer had there were three lines to his prayer. The opening line was Abba Father cried out, everything is possible. So he's saying, God, I know you're all powerful. And you want that's not part one. And I'm saying this because this is a great model and he does to pray about things that are possible to distress or right. Second part of his prayer is that he said, Please take this cup of suffering away from me. If there's a plan B, I'm in, God. I'm in. Take away this cup of suffering. I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want discomfort in my life. And again, someone once told me, oh, I think Jesus was just saying that so the disciples could learn from that. He was saying that because he meant it. He wasn't trying to wimp out or anything like that. He was human. He was afraid. He was distressed. He did not want to suffer. He does. So, Abba Father, you can do all things. He acknowledged the goodness of God. And he said, Please take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. What's important is he did stop there. The next thing he said was, But Father, nevertheless, I want your will, not my will. I want your will, not my will. Father, you can do all things. I want plan B. But I want your plan above my plan. I'm telling you what I really, really deeply desire. Telling you, I want you. To, I was going to say trump my will, but I'm sorry, it was a bad choice of words. But I want you, your will, to always override my will. But I'm going to tell you what my will is, God. And I told you this before. I met, when this was significant for me, I've used it for other times. There was time where I, uh, and you can fill the blank with whatever you need to fill in. But when I had, uh, I had already bought Kathy's uh, engagement ring, um, and first time I asked her to marry me. Said, can't say no, I won't say yes. She's not here today, but it's true. I'm not telling you the truth. And I said, what does that mean? And we have to I still don't know what that meant. Um, but I remember uh, feeling some degree of disruption in this relationship. I want, I know what I want. So I actually would pray with Kathy's ring in my fingers and my hand and I I would model like this. God, I know you can do all things. You're powerful. God, I'm going to tell you what I want. I want to marry Kathy. I'm telling you my want, my deepest desire. I want to marry Kathy. But then it was challenging for me, even, and I would say it out loud to myself when I was praying. Hard to hear myself say it. It was hard to say, but nevertheless, God, if that's not what you want, I don't want it. I want what you want over what I want. But I can't tell you what I want. I really, 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 really want to marry Kathy. But God, if you want to take it away, you take it away. Or yours might be, you might praise your wallet in your hand. God, I really, 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 really need this financial situation to work in my favor. But God, that's not what you want from me that I don't want to. You might put something else in whatever it is in your hands that you're saying, I really want this. Because I, I believe God wants you to tell him deeply what you desire. This is what I want. It's not, it's not, it's not like a stuck little kid. I want, I want, I want, I need, I need, I need. When we move that, sorry. What about Bob? 
Remember, I want, I want, but it's okay to tell God, this is what I want. I want this. But I want what you want over what I want. And of course, if you want anything, God's already told us that it's not good for us. Like if you say, I want to be sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend, or I want to have a different husband or wife, God's already told us those wants will not lead you to life, so don't ask. But if you're saying, God, I really want my this to change in my marriage, I want to change my, I want my financial situation to change. But then to say to God, and you can, you can even tell God how you would do it if you were God. That's what Jesus said. I want plan B. Then you say, but God, I want you to override me. So back to the passage, go back to the slide, Aaron. When it says he learned obedience from the things he suffered, that's kind of what that's talking about. He learned obedience by saying, I will do what you want me to do, even if it means I have to walk through and do something I don't want to do. I don't, I don't want to suffer. So he learned obedience by the things he suffered. So in the same way, now go, go ahead two slides to the next verse. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. Obedience is kind of like the issue here. You do what God tells you to do. And sometimes it will be incredibly, really, 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 really hard. And it will involve suffering. It will involve saying no to something up here that is not a bad thing. God gave us some of these things. They're not bad in themselves, but God might ask you to say no to something here. And in doing so, you're being obedient. And in doing so, what Jesus said when we're obedient, he showed us something. We begin to know Jesus in ways so go on. Um, there is much more we would like to say about this, but it's difficult to explain. This next part, I think it's a little bit humorous. I don't think it was meant to be funny, but imagine that I'm reading this and you're the congregation in Rome in 65 AD. It's difficult for us to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. The spiritually dull, that phrase could be translated dim-witted, slow, mentally, whatever. And I don't think it was... It was meant for kind of a strong exhortation and a challenge. It wasn't meant to shame, but it was meant to be kind of clear. It's, it's difficult because some of you are spiritually dull and don't need to listen. I've been spiritually dull and not want to listen. I didn't want to hear it a certain way, so I chose not to. You've been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's work. Basically, about God's word, they're like babies being milk, they're not eat solid food. But we're still babies, go on. For someone who lives on milk, still an infant, doesn't know how to do what's right, solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. It kind of boils down to spiritual maturity is doing what is right and wrong, not based on some incredibly detailed moral code but based on what God has already told you to do this right or wrong in Scripture, but also what he's telling you to do this right or wrong. So the core of spiritual maturity is the ability to do the right thing because this is what God tells you will be life-giving, and to avoid the wrong thing because God tells you that will destroy you and others. So the question on this one, and I'll, I'll just kind of summarize a few points here, and then we're going to be done here. Uh, these are just real quick points. Point one, you can bring your ignorance and your weakness boldly to Jesus. 
in, in chapter 4 of Hebrews, we're told we can boldly come to the throne of grace. And earlier in this chapter, chapter 5, it talks about the ignorance that our ignorance within our weakness. And you might think that's kind of condescending law. It's true. There's times where I'm ignorant, not intellectually, IQ wise, but I don't know what's right. I don't know what God wants me to do. And weaknesses is no different than the weakness Jesus expresses as human being in the garden. He said, I don't want to do this, I want plan B. You can bring that to Jesus, and he knows exactly what you're doing. Isn't, isn't it great when, you're, when you feel like you connect with the Christ when you, they're empathetic, you feel like, oh, they can't understand. They're feeling what I'm feeling. And there's something about that that makes it very beneficial. You'll listen to that friend's advice because they know what you're feeling. Not in a diagnostic, intellectual kind of way, but in a, they felt those feelings and they know exactly what you're feeling. Jesus says, distress, point three. So that's the first point. You can bring your ignorance to Jesus. Secondly, you only have as much of Jesus in you as you have the spirit of obedience. You can't have any more than Jesus than what you choose to obey. Years ago, I had a student tell me one time, uh, it wasn't a student time, but he was talking about a friend of his, we'll call his friend Joe. He said, Joe's a great guy. He really loves Jesus. He still sticks with his girlfriend, but he really loves Jesus. And I said to him, I said to this friend of mine, that, that, you, that's not true, that can't be possible. You can't really love Jesus and then not obey something he's told you. You can't really love Jesus and not obey something he's told you. So if you really love Jesus, Jesus himself says, if you obey what I command you, then you love me and I love you and I'll show myself to you. We'll have a, you'll experience me in ways you never understood. So you can sing loudly, talk about Jesus all you want, but you'll only have as much of the spirit of Jesus in you as you have the spirit of obeying. Again, it's not about dry, legalistic, guilt-driven obedience. This is the kind of obedience that sets you alive away from you. That's the obedience. Next one. Last one. Jesus knows what it costs you to conquer temptation. His temptation, whether it was in the wilderness with Satan or in the Garden of Gethsemane, his temptation was to look for the easy way out. To look for a way out that was not what God wanted. Some of you right now have been, are, or will be tempted, and I'm not just talking sexual temptation, maybe tempted to kind of stretch the truth on something. Maybe tempted to kind of hoard your money in a way when God's asked you to give it away. Missionaries or church or whatever. And there's all these temptations because you're trying to protect your life, your comfort, your nice little American dream life that we think we're supposed to be entitled to. Jesus never promises that. He promises incredible joy and peace. But the temp Jesus understands the temptations of, I really want, I don't really want that. You understand? And again, I'm not saying God will tell you, find the most uncomfortable route, that's the route you should take in life. No, sometimes God gives us great reasons. In fact, he has to go through trials that are like, how can you be able to do that? So you can bring all those things to Jesus. That's what prayer is, is talking to somebody who totally understands what you're doing. So we finish with this one, then we'll from the previous chapter. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, and there we will receive his mercy and find grace to help us from we pray because we need supernatural intervention. 
for some reason the way God set it up is he will act when we ask. There's something about us acknowledging our need and asking that sets the dynamic power of God in motion. I don't know exactly why that is all the time, but that's how it is. He wants us to state our needs. The example I've given before is when Jesus was healing the blind man Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus was crying out for Jesus to come talk for healing. And Jesus comes to Bartimaeus and he says to this obviously blind man, what do you want me to do for you? And it's kind of one of those I call duh moments. You know, I hate saying duh on that, but I do sometimes. It's like Jesus is blind. What do you think he wants? Well, Jesus was wanting him to hear him state his needs. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do that you know you've tried to do, but you know it can't happen unless you have supernatural intervention? In that case, you're just healing this blindness. In your case, it might be having a better understanding of how God wants you to handle your money or your sex life or your friendships or comfort. And I, just, I need that kind of courage. I need that kind of strength. I need mercy. I need to be able to give this person. Those are supernatural actions requiring supernatural power. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to Doing what we usually do, we take communion at this time, and we'll sing a few songs. The band can come on up. We're going to sing, we're taking communion, but at the same time, we we did this in the past. We're going to start up again this week. There are going to be some people over here, probably behind these cases, that are up there to pray for you. They're, they're the elders and their wives, whichever one they're here. And uh, if you just want them to pray for you, and they will simply ask you the question, "What do you want Jesus to do for you?" But what is it that you, you might be sympathetic with more courage, or I need more peace, or I need strength. And you don't have to tell the whole story. We're asking, we're asking you to unpack the whole story and tell all the details. But you know what you need. And we believe that when we ask God, somebody prays for us, something about to agreeing, God says something that kicks into motion. So I'm going to encourage you, uh, whether you do it before you take me or after, if you want somebody to pray for you, again, they'll be back up there. Uh, just take a few minutes. You might just you might just say, I need some courage, I need some strength, to fight off this issue, temptation. I need I need to forgive this person. When I finished service with the hand, I would go because I felt like there were things I needed God's supernatural intervention for. I needed someone else to pray for me. So there's no shame in going up there. As a matter of fact. I would encourage you all to go for prayer. So uh, here's what we do. Actually, at communion and actually we do it every week. We do it because we want to remind ourselves that this uh, that nothing changes in our lives apart from the interaction of Jesus inside of us. So when Jesus served us tonight, he was praying before he went to the garden. We cried out to God. So this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. Whenever you eat this and you drink this, you proclaim. My coming back, but you also proclaim forgiveness for all, for anyone who would follow me. And so when we take this into us, if you come up here and take it, somebody will say, This is the body of Christ for you, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And you take it into you, it's kind of like baptism. Nothing magical happens all of a sudden. Your internal organs don't change, and all of a sudden you're this incredibly forgiving, generous, life giving person. But you open your spirit up to Jesus and give him the chance for the power to start to work. So every time you take communion or the Eucharist or different denominations call it different things, but it's the same reality. It's taking, opening up your spirit when you open up your mouth 
bear up your spirit to more of the spirit of Jesus. So, as soon as you start singing, you're welcome at mouth. We don't just fit by brothers. You don't have to be a member here. You simply be somebody who is a follower of Jesus. And not giving Jesus any kind of spray on. That you know you're resisting him. But you're welcoming in that case just to stay seated. Um, we don't check who's up or down. I'm happy to talk to you about you. But as you're intentionally resisting God in something, it's your well-being not to take. So all the rest of us who stumble and fall and get up again and need more and more of the power of Jesus to progress. So we pray, and then again, you can, uh, the elders and their wives will come up first to take, and then they'll go back there and be able to go in to pray for anybody back there. So uh, we pray, and then we'll take. Jesus, uh,